0: As we make our way tonight to Job chapter 29, I have to be very honest with you and just confess, I'm feeling a little worn out by the book of Job. To me, it just seems kind of tedious, the way we've been going back and forth with all these men giving their speeches. And I think that that's exactly how the Lord wants us to feel in the book of Job. Tonight, we're going to come to the last words of Job. Now, I don't mean literally his last words. He's going to say a few more things in the final few chapters of the book. But this will be the last thing that he says sort of as an official argument before his friends. We're going to come to Job's concluding arguments. And I have to say, when you read them, there's something especially touching about Job's words this evening as we're going to study them. And you would think that after Job is done talking, then we'd be all through. All right, finally, Lord, reveal yourself. No, no. Just in case you're not sick of men's words yet, God is going to bring forth one last guy named Elihu to speak to us, and we'll talk about Elihu next week. But let's talk for a few minutes now about Job, starting at chapter 29. Job is in the midst of this section that that spans six whole chapters, from chapter 26 to chapter 31, where he is defending himself, and proclaiming his own innocence. It's a very interesting uh, summary that Job makes of all his words before his friends. So we pick it up in the middle of that defense right here, Job chapter 29, verse 1. Job further continued in his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. This is a very touching scene we see here from the life of Job as he describes what it was like before this great catastrophe Came upon him. Did you notice what he said in verse 2? Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me. It's as if Job is remembering, you know, there was a time when God cared about me, there was a time when God watched over me. I want you to notice. He's not talking about losing his wealth here. He's not even talking about losing his family, although in the later verses here he's going to mention that. Number one, what Job lists, the the, the loss that grieved him the most was the sense that God was watching over him. He longed for the days when he had a sense of the closeness of God. There was a time when he felt that God watched over him, but those days were gone. And then he says in verse 3, when his lamp shone upon my head. Verse 4, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. Verse 5, when the Almighty was yet with me. See, Job fondly remembered the days when it seemed that God was for him rather than being against him. You know, again, we want to remind ourselves continually of this fact, the great crisis in Job's life after all of his catastrophic losses. His great crisis was primarily spiritual in that he did not sense the support and the nourishment of God in the aftermath of his loss. Listen, you you can think of what it's like to have eyes that are used to the bright daylight, right? There you are. Your eyes are used to the bright daylight. You have no problem. You never wear sunglasses. You don't want them. Your eyes like the bright daylight. And then suddenly you're plunged into darkness. And there's no darkness that seems so dark as it is to the man whose eyes are used to the bright sunlight. That's what Job was like. His life used to be nourished by the bright sunlight of God's presence and love and care for him. And then it was gone. It's very interesting. Job sensed the great loss that he had from God. In verse 2, he he, he felt that he had lost the consciousness of God's preservation. God, you used to watch over me, now you don't. He he felt that he had lost divine consolation. In verse 3, your lamp shone upon my head. You gave me some consolation, some comfort. Verse 3, he also says that that he uh, he felt the loss of divine illumination. I used to be able to function because of the light of God in my life, but now it's gone. And then he lost the sense of divine communion. That phrase in verse 4 is so powerful. When the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. Isn't that beautiful? To to think of the friendly counsel of God being over your tent. Job says, that's what it used to be for me. Now it's all gone. And then if it can get even more powerful in verses 5 and 6, did you see what he said? When my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Can you almost see a tear rolling down Job's face as he remembers the tragic death of his children? And he's thinking of those happy years when the children were little. And they would dance around their beloved father. And the happiness and the joy and the peace in the home and how wonderful it was. All of that now seems a, a, a long, long way from Job so he goes on to describe more of the blessings that he used to destroy uh, used to enjoy look at verse 7 he says when i went out to the gate by the city when i took my seat in the open square the young men saw me and hid the aged arose and stood the princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth the voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. And I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Now, again, Job is describing here how he used to have such wonderful and righteous relationships with other people. He says in verse 7 I used to go out to the gate by the city. And then he says, I took my seat in the open square. Job once had a position of community leadership, and he was feared and honored by the young men. He was respected by the aged men. Even princes and noblemen stopped and listened to him. And there's Job, a leader in the community, one of the wonderful men of the city. And then verse 11, he says, When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. Not only did Job gain the intention of the people and the leaders in the days past, they also liked him and what he had to say. He was blessed and approved by the people who heard him. He's remembering how great it used to be. Now listen, why did people like Job? It wasn't because he went around town just throwing out his money to buy friends. No, it was because he was a righteous man, that he cared about people, and he was a one-man social service agency. Look at it there in verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried out. Verse 13. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Verse 15. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. Job described how his reputation for wisdom and goodness was deserved. Here was a man of good works and noble works, especially to the poor And the disadvantage. Now, again, this reminds us that even though Job was a man of great wealth and influence, we know that all the way back from Job chapter 1, Job used his wealth and influence to do good instead of simply being greedy and selfish with his wealth. He's a wonderful, marvelous man. Now, I want you to notice that this little section we have right here, verses 7 through 17, is very interesting because it's the first time in the book of Job that Job calls attention to his own righteous works. Isn't that remarkable? Because for chapter after chapter that we've seen before, his friends have all been accusing him of being an unrighteous man. Now listen, if I was a righteous man like Job, and all my friends were accusing me of being unrighteous, one of the first things I would do would say, look at all the good I've done. Look at all the people I've helped. How dare you say these things to me? I want you to notice that Job waits all the way here until chapter 29 before he brings up any defense of his own righteousness on those grounds. But he's going to do it in this chapter. He's going to do it again in chapter 31. Going on here now, verse 18 Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me and my bow is renewed in my hand. You see, it used to be that there was a time in Job's life where he had confidence that he felt that he would die happy and secure in his nest. So he says, after a good long life, And then he says in verse 19 that it was like his root was spread out to the waters. In verse 20, that his glory was fresh within him. We have the sense of the blessing and the abundance and the confidence in Job's life that he once had. And listen, it made it all the more unbearable for Job. Because he was so blessed before that now he seems so cursed by God now. Going on here, verse 21. Men listened to me and waited. And kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. So again, Job is remembering how greatly respected and esteemed he was in the community. He was a man honored for his wise words. He even says in verse 25, he says, I chose the way for them and sat as chief. And this right here highlights the tremendous contrast between the former esteem that Job enjoyed and the terrible criticism he endured from his friends. You know, it's hard to believe that Job was such an exalted man in the community when you hear about how his friends spoke to him, as recorded earlier in the book of Job. But you see, there was a time when no one would have dared criticize Job the way that his friends did now. I just think it's interesting to notice. That, listen, when a man's down, people will pile on. When a man's down, people will kick him. That's just the way it is in this world. That's the way it was for Job. There he was, a righteous, godly man, esteemed. Everybody, you know, Job would almost hear the applause from people clapping when he walked down the street. Every, ooh, Job's talking. Everybody, stop and listen. Job's listening. Princes, t- shut up when Job speaks. Everybody's listening. Job. Everybody honors him. He's a great chief. And then this catastrophe comes in his life. He's bowed down low from circumstances, and everybody can't wait to get their kicks in on him. That's again, it's just the way of the world. If Job had to endure it, I don't know why it should be any different with any of us. But I have to say that Job is also a tremendous example of how a wealthy and powerful man should live his life, not in selfish indulgence, but in care and concern for the less fortunate. I read a great quote in this from a commentary from Adam Clark. And I want you to understand, Adam Clark wrote um, in the late 18th and early 19th century, figure about the time 1810, And you can think of what culture was like then, especially in England, from which Adam Clark wrote. There was still a very big division between the the aristocracy, right, and the common people. And there was a big division culturally between those people. And so this is what Adam Clark writes to the aristocracy of his day. He says, "'Noble Job, look at him, you nobles of the earth, you lieutenants of counties, you generals of armies and lords of provinces. Look at Job!' Imitate his active benevolence and be healthy and happy. Be as guardian angels in your particular districts, blessing all by your example and your bounty. Send your hunting horses to the plough and your game cocks to the dung hill, and at last live like men and Christians. Again, he's just getting at the idea that if God has blessed you with resources, that you should not use them primarily for selfish indulgence, but be a godly man like Job. Now, continuing on, verse uh, 30, here comes the contrast, right? Verse 29 is basically the chapter, how great it used to be. Chapter 30, it's how terrible it is now. Verse 1, But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and laced, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valley, in the caves of the earth, in the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed Under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. That's a very interesting paragraph here. Notice what Job says here in the first few verses. But now they mock at me, men younger than I. He's thinking of the people who mock at him, right? These these kids, men younger than him. Men younger than Job were mocking him. And then he says, and then I think of what kind of despicable young men these are. They're so despicable. Let me tell you about their fathers. Did you notice that in verse 1? whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of the flock. These guys are of such low character, I wouldn't even let the dogs of my flock keep their company. That's how bad they are. And again, he's tortured by the irony of it all. The sons of men whom Job would not even put with the dogs of his flock were now his mockers and his critics. Job thought of all the worthless men who were now his loud critics and how unjust it was all. Verse 9, And now I am their taunting song Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off restraint before me. At my right hand, the rabble arises. They push away my feet and they raise against me the ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers. Under the ruinous storm, they roll along terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. Now think of the worthless men that Job described in verses one through eight. And now he says, they mock me with songs. They're making up songs about Job to mock him. That's how low they think of him. You know, you could think about this way. Job didn't, you know, sneak out of town They they pushed him out of town. They didn't want him around. Job, we don't want you anymore. His neighbors may have very well forcibly removed him to this quarantine in the town dump where, where he sat on the ash heap. And then he says in verse 15, Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. Job mourned the agony of his present state, of being despised among men, when before he was respected and honored, his honor and his prosperity had vanished. And now in verse 16, he's going to continue on describing his misery. He says, And now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of my affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds about as the color of my coat. It has cast me into the mire, and I become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Have we talked about this before? How reading the book of Job and studying Job in the book of Job is like a roller coaster? Sometimes he's going up high, high, high. Oh, Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will stand with him on that day. And other times he's screaming out to God, You spoil my success. You see, he's in agony. Verse 16 my soul is poured out because of my plight. Job's describing his present crisis. He described the persistent gnawing pains that were always with him. But for him, it was very much at the core. It was, first of all, a crisis of his soul. And in verse 17, my bones are pierced. Verse 18, my gnawing pains take no rest. My garment is disfigured with poetic power and eloquence Job described the physical agony of his suffering. I kind of like the New Living Translation of verses 18 and 19. Let me read that to you. It says, In his great power, God clutches at my clothing. He grabs me by the collar of my coat. He throws me in the mud. You know that picture you've seen probably 20 times in Western movies? Where the guy in the saloon gets picked up you know by the rough guys in the saloon, and they run him out of the saloon and they throw him down in the mud of the street. Job says, "That's me, and God's the guy who threw me out. That's how exactly how I feel. He's wrestling with the sheer pain of his disease, almost as if it's a monster coming out after him. And verse 20, it's so interesting. Here. I got to admit that this is absolutely fascinating to me. Verse 20, he says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. Listen, I want you to know. Haven't we seen this for about what seems like 50 chapters? Job crying out to God, but it doesn't seem that God answers him. Listen, I think that in some ways, that phrase in verse 20 is the essence of what faith is all about. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. Now, listen, a lot of people would say, well, if God's not going to answer me, I'm not going to cry out to him, right? You don't answer me? Forget it. And other people say, well, I'll only cry out to God if he guarantees me an answer. But the essence of faith is to say, I keep crying out to you, God. Why won't you answer me? I want to suggest to you that there's classically two ways of gaining the favor and the approval of God. The first way is like this. You try to be very, very, very good, and you hope that God will take notice of what a good boy or good girl you are, right? Oh, God notices you. Oh, good, now God likes me. And then here's the other way. Here's the Job way. You grab hold of God, you beg for his blessing, and you refuse to let go of him until he comes through. That's Job. That's Jacob wrestling with the, with the angel of the Lord till the break of dawn, right? Say, look, forget this business about me being good enough. No, God, I'm holding on to you and you won't answer me, but I'm going to keep calling you on it. I'm going to keep calling out to you. I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. That's Job's attitude right here. You see, this was the very worst aspect of Job's suffering. The sense that God had forsaken him. He undeniably felt that God was against him. Did you notice that in verse 21? With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. Verse 22, you spoil my success. Indeed, Job felt that God wanted to destroy him and would destroy him. Verse 23, how powerful is that? I know that you will bring me to death. This is under a very severe depression of spirit. He felt that he was about to die. Maybe Job's clutching his heart. He feels the pains coursing through his chest when he says this. I don't know how much longer I can take this, God. What are you trying to do, kill me? Then he continues on, verse 24. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins. And then if they cry out when he destroys it, Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? When I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned into mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. Verse 24, isn't it interesting? Surely you would not stretch out your hand against a heap of ruins. It's as if Job is saying this, God, you're more merciful than this. Look at me, I'm just a heap of ruins. I'm crying out to you. Why won't you respond to my cries? And then again in verse 25, now he's reminding God again of his righteousness. Have I not wept for him who is in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Listen, God, why won't you treat me with the same kindness that I treated other people with? Again, this is a a deep, deep argument that Job makes. Verse 27, My heart is in turmoil and I cannot rest. Perhaps Job just tried to, to just take it easy and not get so troubled over his problems. I mean, wouldn't you feel like counseling Job that? Job, 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 breathe in and out, Job. Take a drink. Go lay down, Job. Look, just you're getting all worked up. What does he say? He says, listen, I tried that. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. My, my physical suffering, my spiritual agony, it's more than it seems like I can bear. It's more than my friends can relate to. So you see Job coming up to this place of just frustration and agony, which brings us to a very interesting chapter, Job chapter 31. The the last chapter of Job's defense. I want you to notice this. This chapter is, is occupied with a solemn oath of innocence that Job makes. Now, what's fascinating about this is we know that this oath of innocence that Job makes is somewhat along the lines of a pattern that we see in other ancient documents where somebody would stand before their God and take an oath of innocence. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do the other thing. I haven't been guilty of this. I haven't been guilty of that. People would do this in that day. And now Job is making a very solemn oath of innocence before his God. He's going to stand before God and say, listen, Lord, listen, friends, this is what my life has been like. You know what I think is so wonderful about Job chapter 31? Is it shows us what the life of a blameless and upright man is like. Right, from Job chapter 1, we know that Job was a blameless and upright man. We know that the anonymous author of the book of Job tells us that. And we also know that God in heaven said it of Job. And that was before all of this turmoil started in Job's life. The catastrophic loss of his children. The catastrophic loss of all of his wealth. The souring of the relationship with his wife. The catastrophic loss of his health and physical well-being. And then his loss of sense of fellowship with God. And then even the support and comfort of his friends. He lost it all. But in the midst of all of that, it tells us precious little... What kind of life did Job live? Well, now, Job chapter 31, Job's going to tell us. Look at how he begins, verses 1 through 4. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? You see, Job is protesting here that he was a godly and a blameless man. He's trying to explain the sense of injustice that he felt at his suffering and his humiliation. And he's trying to make a final defense before his friends and before God, because, especially because his friends accused him of special sin, deserving special judgment. And Job is going to point out in this chapter, special sin? I'm a godly man. And let me tell you why I'm a godly man. Now, again, I think Job deserves a lot of praise for his self-restraint in not coming to the information in Job chapter 31 much, much earlier in the book. He, He held off on it for a long time, but I'm glad that he finally tells us, this is the kind of life that I lived. So in defending his righteous life, where's the first place he starts? He begins by explaining that he's a morally pure man who did not look upon a young woman in impure and inappropriate ways. What does he say there in verse 1? I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? I think it's very significant that in this long section where Job explained his righteous life, he began by noting that he guarded his eyes from lustful looks upon a young woman. And I would say that this rightly suggests that a man's ability to not look upon lustful images is an important indicator of his general righteousness and blamelessness. By the way, this also suggests to us that the eyes are a gateway to lust, especially for men. Again, this is demonstrated over and over again, both by personal experience and by scientific study. When a man places enticing, sensual, lust-inducing images before his eyes, it's a form of sin. You could even say it's a form of sexual foreplay. It's inappropriate for any man. And so he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Instead, he says, what does he say in verse 1? I've made a covenant with my eyes. Job's ability to control himself was connected with a covenant that he made. He made a vow, a promise, a commitment with his own eyes that he would not look upon a young woman in a sinful way. And so please, understand, Job is not trying to tell us that he has been delivered from lust altogether. Job says, no, 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 I never experienced lust. He says, no. I refuse to dwell upon the lustful feelings that that would come upon any normal red-blooded male. They would come upon me, but I refuse to entertain those lustful images. I think it's very interesting as well that Job insists that he would not look upon a young woman. In, In the old King James, and perhaps in some of your versions, it says a maid or a maiden. Do you know what that means? That means a young unmarried woman is what Job literally says here. Now, you know what I find fascinating about that? Job was a man of incredible wealth and prestige. He could have had a thousand wives if he wanted to. He basically could have looked upon any maiden, any young woman that he wanted, and said, I look at you, I want you. Job didn't do that. He said, no, I won't do that. The culture says it's okay for a rich and influential man like me to have as many young women as I want to. I just keep adding wives, right? Marry and marry and marry and marry am fine. Job says, no, that's not for me. Job restrained himself from women that other people in the same circumstances would not restrain themselves from. And you know what? I think when you look at the logic under which Job does this, it's very interesting. Look at what he says. The logic is explained in verse 2. Mr. Job, why have you made a covenant with your eyes that you won't look upon a woman? What's the harm in just looking, Job? Can you please explain it to me? What does he say, verse 2? For what is the allotment of God from above? You see, in the context of Job's self-control when it came to lust, he considered what the allotment from God from above was. He understood that the young woman that he would be enticed to look upon was not the allotment of God for him. Her and her beauty, it didn't belong to Job in any meaningful way. I find it very interesting in the book of Leviticus. It reinforces this biblical principle. In chapter 18, it relates the principle of how, and it uses this terminology in Leviticus 18, the nakedness of somebody. It says that the nakedness of an individual belongs to that individual and to their spouse. And it doesn't belong to anybody else. Therefore, when a man looks upon the nakedness of a woman who's not his wife He takes something that does not belong to him. It's not allotted to him. And Job said, what is the allotment of God from above? I want you to consider that there certainly existed in Job's day some type of pornography. You know how I can say this with confidence? Because archaeologists will tell you that some of the earliest artifacts that they dig up are grotesquely sexualized images, ancient versions of pornography. The earliest artistic images are of women and men in highly sexualized motifs. Nevertheless, Job certainly did not have to contend with the very sophisticated and gigantic and far-reaching modern pornography industry that there is today. Nevertheless, it's still God's command for us today to confine our visual arousal as men to the one that God has allotted for us. God has allotted one for you. That's all you do. In this context, it's very helpful for a man to ask himself, whose nakedness belongs to me and whose does not? You know, only a very proud or depraved man would think that every woman's nakedness belongs to him. A a moment of thought reinforces this biblical principle. Only the nakedness of his own wife is the allotment of God from above for a man. And his own wife is what? Did you notice the words he said? The inheritance of the Almighty from on high for his visual arousal. Then in verse 3, Job considers the result of not doing this. Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? You see, in the context of Job's self-control when it came to lust, he also considered the destructive nature of allowing oneself to be aroused by alluring images. He perhaps considered the lives of other people who had been destroyed by lust and the sexual sin that began with visual arousal. Listen, Job had to contend with it in his day. We have to contend with it in our own day. But I think that these principles that Job lays out for his own purity are very valuable for us. He made a covenant with his eyes. He didn't give in to lust. He didn't go along with the culture. The culture said, Go ahead, take a maiden. Job said, No, I will not. He considered what was the allotment of God from above God. What do you give me? And then notice in verse 4, what does he say? Does he not see all my ways and count all my steps? You see, In the context of Job's self-control when it came to lust, it was helpful for him to consider that God's eye was on him all the time. God's with you all the time. If you'd really consider that, that might change your behavior. It might change what you look at. It might change what you allow your heart and your mind to pursue. I find it fascinating. When Job is defending his own integrity as a man of God, where does he begin He begins at this very point by saying, I, as a godly man, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Next, verses 5 eight. Nobody should think that that's all there was to Job's godliness. No, not at all. It's the first thing he listed, but look at verse 5. He's going to explain how he was not guilty of falsehood. He says, If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart has walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. You see, Job also proclaimed his blameless life because he lived an essentially truthful life. He wasn't afraid to be weighed, on honest scales and have his life examined in an honest way? He says in verse 7, If my step is turned from the way, verse 8, then let me sow and another eat. Job was not afraid to call a curse upon himself if indeed he was not an honest man. He was willing to be deprived of the fruit of his own labor if it was true that he would be found lacking on the honest scales of God's judgment. So what was Job? Job was a man who kept himself free from lust. Job was a man who was truthful. That's the mark of a godly person, isn't it? You're a true person. You're not a false person. But it goes on next, verse 9. Job's going to tell us how he was not an adulterer. He says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her. Yes, that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction, and would root out all my increase. Verse 9, Job says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, This was the next area of integrity that Job proclaimed. He said, listen, I've been faithful to my wife within the marriage. He understood that this was more than just a matter of sexual relations, but it also included his heart being enticed. Job touched upon a very significant truth here, that it's entirely possible to allow your heart to be enticed by another. You hear about it from time to time. Tragically, too much. Married man, married woman. Oh, I've fallen in love with somebody else. You've allowed your heart to be enticed by somebody else. Can I just say, you had control over it. You really did. It was your choice. And I feel very bad for you for the bad choices that you might have made. But I'll say it was nevertheless your choice. These things happen because of choices one makes. Not merely because one has been acted upon by the mystical or magical power of romantic love. No, it's a choice. Instead, Job insisted that for him to have his heart be enticed, it would be wickedness, and indeed it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. He says, listen, if I've been unfaithful in heart or in action towards my wife, then let my wife be taken away from me and given to another. Let my wife grind for another. And then he says, for that, verse 12, would be a fire that consumes the destruction. Job understood that allowing his heart to be enticed by another woman other than his wife, that it would be a, bring a destructive, burned-over result. By the way, I think it's very interesting what he says there in verse 12. And root out all my increase. In other words, if Job were to give his heart and let his heart become enticed by another woman, and fall in love with another woman, it would end up rooting out all his increase. And I have to say, when I thought of that, I couldn't help but think of men who are burdened by these alimony payments, right? All their wealth just disappears to to these string of wives that they had in the past. Well, look, Job told you right there, it would root out all of his increase if he had done this. Many men who feel themselves under oppressive alimony or child support payments because they allowed their heart to be enticed by another woman, They've lived out this statement by Job and they've seen all their increase rooted out. Now, in this case, we can see, can't we see from this? Job was actually tempted to adultery, but he resisted the temptation. In other words, the, the knock came at the door of Job's heart to commit adultery, but he resisted. He's strong against it. And so can we in the power of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that was the third thing. He did not commit adultery. What's our list so far? He didn't give himself over to lust. He was honest. He he, he didn't commit adultery. I'm going to forget this list as we go on, but let's let's go. Verse four here, or the fourth one, verse 13. He, He didn't treat his servants cruelly. He said, if I've despised the cause of my male or female servants when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did he not make me in the womb? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? This this is astounding. Now please remember that it's very likely, I would say of almost certainty, that Job lived before the time of the law of Moses. And the law of Moses had very progressive laws concerning slaves how to treat your slaves, and the rights of a slave. Job was even more progressive than the law of Moses. He says, listen, if I've despised the cause of my male or female servant, why would I ever do that? Did you notice his logic? Verse 14, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he punishes, how shall I answer him? One reason why Job treated his servants well was because he understood that he had to answer to God for his actions towards others, including his servants. He understood that God cared about his servants and he would avenge ill treatment of his servants. And then he says in verse 15, something that is absolutely astounding for the ancient world. He says this, Did not he who made me in the womb make them? What's another reason why Job treated his servants well? He realized they're essential humanity. You know, basically, to hold somebody in slavery, you have to consider them subhuman. You have to tell yourself that. They're not of the same order of humanity as I am. That's the excuse. You have to keep telling yourself. And what did Job say? He says, no, I couldn't treat my servants cruelly. I couldn't treat them badly because I knew that they were the same as I. In, In 1886... That was the year of one commentator I read named Bradley. And he said this. He said, Think of this and contrast it with the laws or the feelings of slaveholders in Greece or Rome or in our times much nearer our own in Christian Jamaica of the days of our fathers in a Christian North America in our own days. It's true. So that's the next thing. The fourth thing he did was he did not oppress his slaves. Now number five. Number five. He didn't victimize the poor or the weak. Starting out, verse 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me and if he has not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw that I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from its shoulder and let my arm be torn from its socket. For destruction from God is a terror to me and because of his magnificence I cannot endure. Now, As a further testimony to his righteousness, Job insisted that he had been good and kind to the poor and to the helpless, such as the widow and the fatherless. Verse 19, he says, If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, if I've been uncompassionate to the poor and needy, you see what he said in verse 22, very picturesque, then let my arm fall from my shoulder basically let somebody rip my arm from its socket and let them beat me over the head with it, that kind of idea. You see, in the same manner as before, Job called for a curse to come upon himself if it was true that he had not cared for the poor and the helpless as he had claimed to. He knew that if he had been cruel and oppressive to the poor and needy, that he would indeed deserve punishment. And that was part of the reason why he cared the way that he did Did you see what he said there in verse 23? For destruction from God is a terror to me. He said, listen, I'm going to treat the poor and the needy good because that's what God wants me to do. Then verse 24. Now he begins to explain to us that he was not greedy or a seeker of false gods. Here we go, verse 24. If I have made gold my hope, Or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. Job first says in verse 24, I haven't made gold my hope which of course is always a temptation, especially to wealthy men. It's often the wealthy that have the greatest temptation to trust in riches. But Job Job avoided this problem. He said, no, I haven't made gold my hope. And then he says, notice in verse 26, if I have observed the sun when it shines, and then he refers to the moon in the very next line. Job meant here that he had not engaged in the very common practice of sun worship or moon worship. His heart was not secretly enticed to idolatry, which apparently sometimes was worshipped with the kissing of the hand. And he says in verse 28, Listen, if I was an idolater, if I was this greedy person, then this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. Now you know what I think is Very interesting about this is Job rejected idolatry and he looked to the God who lived in heaven, the invisible God who dwelt in heaven and said, I'm going to worship that God and that God alone. And he never had a word of the Bible to guide him. Isn't that amazing? This shows us, Job shows us how much of God can be known by natural revelation and by conscience. Conscience. He knew that since there was a true living God enthroned in the heaven that it was indeed an iniquity deserving of judgment to deny this God who is above and to worship any other. Now starting at verse 29, he's going to give some some general words on his innocence. He's going to put together a few things, right? So we've had a whole circle of things. Oh my, I don't think I can remember them all, all the way back from the beginning of chapter 31. First we had, I, I, I haven't given my eyes over to lust. And then secondly, he said, um, I, I'm honest, right? I'm, I'm truthful. Then third, he said, I haven't committed adultery. Then fourth, he said, I treated my servants well. And then fifth, he said that he didn't victimize the poor or the weak. And then sixth, he said, I'm not greedy or I'm not an idolater. And then now under point seven, it's just several different things, starting at verse 29. If I have rejoiced in the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. Now, I want you to notice this. Job here is saying, that I haven't been happy when my enemies have suffered and been destroyed. You know, that's certainly the mark of a man after God's own heart. God says in Ezekiel 33 that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And Job says, no, even people who are my enemies, I didn't take pleasure when they were destroyed. And then verse 32, excuse me, verse 31 is where we left off. If the men of my tent had not said, where is that that has not been satisfied with his meat. But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I've opened my doors to the traveler. Here Job says, Listen, I've been a hospitable person. Whenever anybody needed a place to stay, whenever they needed food at my table, I gave it to them. Mine was a place of hospitality. Then starting at verse 33, If I have covered my transgression, as Adam By hiding my iniquity in my bones, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence and so that I did not go out of the door. And then he stops. You see here, he says, if I had covered my transgression as Adam, hiding iniquity in my bosom, listen, I'm not covering anything is what he's saying. By the way, wasn't that the great accusation of Job's friends against him? Job, all this catastrophe came upon you. It must have come upon you because you were wicked. You're hiding something. And so now, towards the very end of his defense, of the proclamation of his righteous life, he says, I'm not like Adam. By the way, don't you think it's wonderful that Job knew the Adam and Eve story before the scriptures were written? That it was passed down as an oral tradition that people knew this? That humanity understood this? That Job knew who Adam and Eve were. And then he said, listen, you friends of mine, you say I just appear to be righteous, but I'm covering something. And he says, if I have covered my transgression as Adam by hiding iniquity in my bosom, and the implication is there, then let me be cursed. Or if I hid my sin because I feared the great multitude, as he says in verse 34. Job here answered the accusation that he was motivated to hide his sin because of fear of the great multitude. He says, no, that's not me. Then I find the end of verse 34 to be very interesting. I, I like how it's translated in my Bible. In my Bible, the end of verse 34 has a dash. Now that original dash is not in the original Hebrew But I think it's legitimate from the translator. Because here, it seems to me that at the end of verse 34, Job just breaks off. Some people wonder if there's not some slight corruption in the original manuscript. And maybe a couple words or a couple verses have been lost. But I don't think that's necessary. I think Job has been going through defending his righteous life. and, And now he's tired of it all. And he gets back to it here, to the core of it all here. Verses 35 through 37. Please look at this carefully. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. It seems here that Job interrupted The defense of the morality and the righteousness of his life. And he probably had more he could say to defend himself. I mean, we went through a pretty good list of Job's righteous life, right? But he probably could have gone on and said more things than how he was a righteous and godly man. But he broke off all of that line of reasoning and made a final dramatic appeal to be heard before the throne of God. It's as if Job is shaking his hands towards heaven. Saying, why won't you answer me? When will you let me appear before you? I like what one commentator, his name is Smick, what he says here. He says, Job strategically brought his oration to its climax with a sudden change in tone. He was now sure of his innocence so confident of the truthfulness of these oaths that he affixed his signature and presented them as his defense with a challenge before God for a corresponding written indictment. Oh, he did. Job so signed it. D- did you notice that there in verse 35? Here is my mark. Now literally in the Hebrew, it's here is my ta. Because... In ancient cultures such as ancient Israel, ancient Hebrew, you could translate that here is my signature because the ta was like an X and it was that person's mark or signature on an official document. But the letter Taw is not quite an X. It's more like a cross-shaped mark. It's like Job saying, here is my cross, here's my signature. God, here's my defense brief before you. It's official, I've signed it. Won't you come down and answer me? And that's why he cries out with all the passion in his heart in verse 35, Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. You see, Job was absolutely convinced that what he needed was vindication, or at least an answer from God. His friends thoroughly analyzed the situation and came to completely wrong conclusions. Job couldn't make sense of it himself, and so he called God out, and he said, God, you come and answer for what you're doing in this whole situation. Now, as Job stands before God's court of justice right here and points his finger to heaven and demands that God answer him, he's going to have to repent of this. He does repent of it later. He repents of it in Job 42, 5 and 6. Job would come to find that he had no right to demand an answer from God. You know what's so interesting? here's Job crying out with all of his heart, with all the his soul, God, answer me! And when God appears in a few chapters, we'll get to this after Elihu next week, when God appears, God doesn't answer him. I mean, that's one of the most mind-blowing things. When God comes and speaks to Job, he doesn't give him any answers. it Now, Job... Let me explain to you why this happened. See, there was this problem between me and Satan. And I wanted to sort it out, and I was using it for an example. And Satan came back to me and said, Well, no, you God doesn't do any of that. And you know what? We'll, we'll get into that when we get into that. But what I just want you to understand is can't you sympathize with Job right now? That you, you You feel like what you really need from God is an answer. I'm here to tell you, that's not what Job needed from God. Because when God showed up, not bring in answer, Job was happy as anything. Job was pleased as punch. It's wonderful to see. But yet at the same time, there's something, we resonate with what Job's saying here, right? We sympathize with him, because we've been there, at least in some degree. Then he says in verse 35, how powerful is this? Oh, that my prosecutor had written a book. This shows the profound, yet understandable spiritual confusion of Job. He felt that God was his accuser. He felt that God was his prosecutor when really it was Satan. Right? We sympathize with Job. We know that he could not have seen behind the mysterious curtain that separates heaven from earth, and yet we learn from what Job should have known. And he goes, If you would have written out the accusation, oh my heavenly prosecutor, what does he says in verse 36? He says, Surely I would carry it in my shoulder here job is stepping over the boundary that he would later repent of he longs to have the accusation of god written out so he could refute it as he had so refuted, effectively refuted his friends it's almost as if job 's saying this okay god i answered my friends they, they don't have anything more to say i've shut them all up now why don't you bring your accusation against me and i'll answer it too you write it out for me god i'll put it on my shoulder I'll approach you. Did you see that in those verses? I'll approach you like a prince. Job was confident in what he knew. He knew that he was a blameless and upright man who did not bring the catastrophe upon himself by his own special sin. But you know where Job's problem was? He was much too confident because there were things in the situation that he could not see things that happened in the spiritual realm. They were known to us in Job chapters 1 and 2, but they were unknown to Job in the story. Somewhat like Job's friends, Job thinks he knows more about his situation than he really does. So verse 38. If the land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money, Or caused its owners to lose their lives. Then let thistles grow instead of wheat. And weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. See in this chapter... Job testified to his own integrity in the most solemn of terms, calling repeated curses upon himself if his friends could indeed demonstrate that he was a conspicuous sinner that was worthy of a conspicuous judgment or discipline from God. And now he called on one more witness, his own land, his own property. It's very interesting. There's a few places in the scriptures where the land is called forth to be a witness In in The the land is called forth as a witness. Well, land, you come up and witness against me. Because listen, if I'm wrong, if I've sinned, then let the land testify against me. Which, of course, was a pretty heavy judgment in a society where you made your whole living off the land, right? You were basically inviting a great curse upon your own life if, if you were lying. So it ends right there at verse 40. The words of Job are ended. Now, it isn't that there are no more words from Job in the book of Job. He's going to speak briefly in the later chapters. Yet Job is definitely done arguing his case. He's finished. Now, one more man is going to try in vain to fix the problem. Elihu, next week. And then God will appear. We might rightly say that God, who has been silent to this point, right? Silent. God could not or would not appear and speak until all the arguments of man were exhausted. I have to think, you know, the way it's written in my Bible, that that last phrase, the words of Job are ended, the way it's written in my Bible is that Job didn't say it. I think Job said it. I think Job said, done. Nothing more I can say. The words of Job are ended. And then everybody's hoping that God is going to come speak. Well, he will. But we've got to get our way through Elihu. That's for next week. But at this point, we've reached the end of Job's outcry of pain. The end of it all is silence. And that's going to be God's opportunity for speech. God often waits until we've said everything and then in the silence he prepares for us then he'll speak you know i just want to come back to that point job was crying out to god for answers when god appeared he didn't give job the answers he would thought he wanted but he ended up meeting every need of job well you can't put this all into perfect context until we get to the last few chapters of the book. It'll all come together, I think, really in a beautiful, beautiful circle at the end. But until then, stick with this picture of Job as a godly man, and stick with the God who has answers above, above the answers we think we need. Father, that's our prayer tonight. You know, Lord, rather than you giving us an answer, we want you to be our answer. Pray that you would do that. And pray, Father, that you would show us more and more about this very practical, righteous, godly life that Job lived. And Father, each one of us, we have Jesus Christ dwelling within us, Lord. (laughs) We have one greater than Job wanting to live his life in and through us. So help us to yield to the power of our Savior. And help us, Lord, to have the life of Jesus Christ lived in and through us. Thank you, Lord, for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.